Welcome to the Fifth Planning Exchange podcast, and thank you to all of you who have downloaded our podcast so far. For a complete list of our podcasts and speakers, please visit our website at www.planningexchange.org, where you can find more information about our speakers, as well as a list of upcoming podcasts to look forward to. Today we're doing something a little bit different and interviewing Stephen Rowley, who's recently completed his thesis exploring the interactions that have occurred between how we picture cities and towns culturally and how we build cities in real life. Thanks, Jess. Steve is a lecturer at RMIT, where he teaches statutory planning and is a planning consultant under the banner RCI Planning. He is Vice President of the Planning Institute of Australia, the Victorian Division, and is Planning Editor of the Victorian Planning Reports. His book, Movie Towns and Sitcom Suburbs, Building Hollywood's Ideal Communities, is to be published in 2015. So, Steve, can you just give us a bit of a... Um, a bit of a rundown as to what the relationship is between cities and film. Yeah, thanks Jess. Um, thanks Peter. Um, yeah, look, uh, I was um, uh, doing film studies at uni alongside my planning degrees and became really sort of interested in this as I was um, working as a, as a practicing planner. Um, and I suppose where I see the link as being is that um, if you think about the way uh, we picture Things like architecture, you often your idea of architecture often comes through photography, um, and in terms of the way we picture cities and towns, I think film sort of extends that. So, just as photos can give you an idea of the the visuals of how a building is designed, um, cinema does all the same thing and still gives you a sense of how places are designed and communities are designed. But it also, by the depiction of stories and use of that space, gives you an idea of. Um, uh, films can sort of explore the, the added dimensions that planners are interested in in terms of the way communities use space. And I think that then leads into a whole lot of questions that planners should be really interested in in terms of how we, um, how we communicate, how we share and how we gain our ideas about place and about cities and about where we want to live um, in terms of um, you know, if you're interested in things like, you know, housing choice and, you know, whether people want to live in the suburbs or whether they want to live in the inner cities, your um, idea of those sort of places and your idea of the virtues of inner city living versus suburban living versus small town living, it's going to come partly from lived experience, but there are also all these things you get culturally. Um, that's, you know, books, you know, you know um, paintings, photography, all kinds of things, but I think film is a particularly interesting one in that sort of urban planning space. What sort of uh, examples can you give where film has influenced planning and planning has influenced film? Yeah, well, for my, um, for my thesis, which is, is now turning into a book, I was particularly interested in um, what happened in America after World War II. So, you know, probably most of the people listening will have a pretty good idea of the sort of real uh, sort of suburban expansion that happened in World War II, the, you know, the, the baby boom generation, returning GIs, you know, all of the things that happened um, with this, this sort of mass adoption of mass-produced suburbia and the rise of the car and all, all of those things. And culturally, alongside that, you had this um, period, if you look in the sort of late 40s, early 50s, um, a particular image of community in the sort of the classic is the sort of the 50s sitcom idea, um, where there's a particularly um, idealised version of that suburban lifestyle in something like A Father Knows Best or a Leave It to Beaver, those sort of American sitcoms. And if you're, if you're trying to understand how people view the suburban experience, 
Um, I think those sort of cultural examples are really interesting to look at. And if you look at how things progressed in the decades after World War II, um, you've noticed that as that suburban dream has become, uh, you know, people have adopted that dream and lived in that, those kind of communities and we have our own equivalents here um, and found that, you know, they're not as great as that and the, um, some of the American post-war landscapes are pretty horrendous. Um, culturally, it turns around and those sort of communities tend to be, um, those uh, cultural depictions tend to be a point of sort of satire now and you get things like Pleasantville um, that culturally sort of unpick it. Um, and it's very hard to present that um, classic suburban landscape in a non-ironic way now. Um, the, that sort of, and again, Pleasantville is a classic example. It, it exists only to be subverted now culturally and that's partly to do with our sort of um, our reaction to that suburban landscape and our experience of it in the time since. Mm. So do you think people can be disappointed by suburbs in, in reality when compared with film? Or do you think there's a good balance between uh, the realistic view of suburbs? I think they can be. I think, um, you know, I'll look, you know, when I talk about it like this, you end up oversimplifying a little mm. bit. So it, it's not as if people ever... Um, uh, suck these sort of perceptions up in a, a um, completely sort of credulous way. Mm. Um, it's very easy to be, um, to sort of overestimate the naivety of previous generations. Um, one of the films that's really interesting to look at in terms of, this is actually going back a step earlier, but the small town uh, sort of depictions that you got in 1940s small town movies, um, Magnificent Ambersons, which is the, the Orson Welles movie, um, is very preoccupied with what the car's going to do and what the, you know, there's a, there's a fantastic speech and monologue in that movie about the, the all-pervasive influence of the car and how it's going to completely rewrite the landscape. Mm-hmm. And you see that actually come through a lot of movies. If you look at It's a Wonderful Life, there's this sort of real sense of the, um, the car um, spoiling the town in the sort of nightmare Pottersville version of the town, for those who, who know that movie. Um, so... There was from quite early on also this parallel strain in popular culture of the bad suburb. Mm -hmm. There's a really interesting strain of um, 50s and 60s movies, um, well, going back as far as the 50s and 60s and even the 40s, of um, quite satirical or negative depictions of the suburb in Hollywood films as well. Um, Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House is a film from the 1940s about um, the sort of materialism of people building their dream homes in the suburbs. Uh, you get to things like The Man in the Grey Funnel Suit in the 50s. Um, there's a fantastic movie called No Down Payment, which mm-hmm. is um, about a bunch of young couples going out. And it, it's, it was written by a, a blacklisted screenwriter. Um, and it's incredibly direct about, for example, Japanese-American GIs being refused entry into suburban landscapes. This is a movie that's in sort of oh, nine, wow. 1956. Mm-hmm. There's this incredibly impassioned... Uh, monologue from a Japanese or well, dialogue, incredibly impassioned speech by this Japanese American character going, "Well, you know, I fought in the war. I, you know, I've got the same rights you do. Why won't they let me in? It's because I'm Japanese. Mm. It's, um, it, it is quite incredible to see how that sort of anti-suburban depiction comes up. Mm. I guess though, what what I'd be saying is that you get from these kind of cultural depictions. It's not that everyone watches fifty sitcoms and decides." you know, the suburbs are awesome. Yeah. Um, but I do think 
some of our sort of language and some of our ideas about the way to communicate these ideas that you then draw on mm. um, do come from culture and are, can be reinforced by culture. And so, you know, you see battles between um, the idea of the suburban lifestyle in sitcoms being sort of, you know, really great um, versus, you know, in the 90s you had that real rise of sitcoms that were all set in the inner city and, you know, your Seinfeld and Friends and Will and Grace and Sex in the City and, you know, that cycle's still playing out of the mm. New York inner city lifestyle, you know, as the kind of, like, ultimate. Even that's getting subverted now. If you want something like Girls, it's really kind of, like, unpicking, yeah, you know, the, how, you know, broke they are and how silly they are and how foolish their sort of self-image is, you know, yeah. these people who are living and that And it can lifestyle. actually be really tough living yeah. in those places. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely. So film is, um, film creates perceptions of cities and, and spaces. What about looking into the future um, in terms of you know, uh, film setting the future and, and what is that saying about the pessimism or optimism of uh, of our times. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think um, you know, just as you get sort of dueling perspectives in uh, popular culture about the depiction of the present, I suppose you look at utopic utopic versus dystopic depictions in the future. Um, again, you can look at those and and ask yourself, just as you might have a depiction of the suburbs that paints them in a very complementary light versus a depiction of the city that, you know, paints it in a really negative light. You can look at, um, in terms of how you depict New York, are you depicting it as, you know, Woody Allen's Manhattan or are you depicting it as taxi driver? And that tells you something about, you know, the particular vision of the urban inner city that's being portrayed. You can do the same with depictions of the future and go, well, what are the messages they're selling? What are they showing um, as being the sort of the nightmare? What are the traits of the nightmare? And what's that, what's that telling us about our view today? You'll think of something like um, uh, Blade Runner. Blade Runner is really interesting because it is painted as this absolute sort of nightmare city, but it's Los Angeles. And if you've ever been or been to Los Angeles or spent some time in Los Angeles, Every problem Los Angeles has is the opposite of what Blade Runner has. So Blade Runner is presented as like a New York or Tokyo, inner city, dense, lots of street life. You know, LA is quite dense, but it's certainly not a walking city. It's not a place you'd wander around. Um, and there's a, there's a great line um, uh, that uh, I read in an article about Blade Runner where they're talking about um, showing Blade Runner to Los Angeles urban planners and they're going well yeah we'd, we'd love to get LA to look like Blade Runner does they seem to have a functioning public transport network <laughs> you know there are all these street vendors it's like it's awesome you know so it's 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 interesting the way that um, Blade Runner is probably a, a hangover of the traditional uh, distrust of the New York type inner city dead city but as those cultural perceptions have moved on and since the 1980s there's that, been that real renaissance in the um, cultural, the real life and the cultural perception of New York, you suddenly look at Blade Runner and go, oh, it's actually a bit weird that they think that's so bad that, that um, future Los Angeles looks like that. The science is very much influenced by sci-fi movies. A lot of sci scientific technologists look at creations based on old science fiction. Uh, do you think there's a, a role for planners to look at film more closely about projections into the future? Um, maybe not, maybe not purely in terms of projections into the future. Um, that's probably sort of been, I, 
I suppose it's, it's sort of what I, what I was saying then about um, it's more the values underlying it. And I think projections into the future become a way of exaggerating that for effect. You tend to go, science fiction tends to be about taking a trait from the world today, whether it's surveillance technology or whatever, and you exaggerate it for effect by putting it into the future. So I actually think the, the future versus present thing doesn't really change too much. But um, I certainly think planners should be thinking about the way things are presented in, um, in film and TV and think about the messages that has. I suppose you could think of something like The Truman Show, for example, as being a, a, a quasi-science fictional example, and that's taking traits about um, things that were happening in architecture and urban planning at the time in terms of um, highly planned communities, and that was you know, the new urbanism trying to sort of create a particular model of community. Um, and it heightens that in a, in a science fictional way to become a, your, your carefully designed, architecturally designed community becomes a ultra-planned, controlled sort of nightmare space that people try and escape from. Now, you've been to that, where it was set in this yeah, day. Yeah, that was um, at Seaside. Um, and it's really interesting to go to Seaside because... Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Seaside? Yeah, so, so Seaside's the sort of quintessential new urbanist community. It was sort of before new urbanism was even really a thing. It was the sort of example that they built. Um, you go there and I think I went there certainly with a particular image of what it was going to be like that was from things like The Truman Show. And it's partially true, it is pretty twee and it's all white picket fences and all that kind of stuff and it's got a lot of pastel colours and things like that. It was sort of started development in the late 80s. But it's also an incredibly good piece of physical design. It's very walkable, it's very, um, it's very dense, it's got detached housing still, it's basically largely a detached housing model, but at a density, you know, we would only dream of here in Victoria mm. in a sort of outer suburban area. People love it. Um, it's got a, you know, without getting into too much detail, it's got a lot of um, really good sort of walkable um, paths done in a very clever way in terms of how they arrange them to be safe and easy, easy to view. And yet it's become, through these cultural depictions, this um, almost mocked space. And I think the new urbanists, uh, um, you know, fret a lot about what something like the Truman Show and the use of Seaside in Truman Show did to the sort of perception of, of their architectural movement, I suppose. You could say that, I think, as a comparison in Victoria, I mean, we've got our growth areas, which are highly, highly planned communities, and, you know, they go through it two to five year process essentially before development commences um, in, in the design phase. Would you say that they're overly planned? Are they, are they not planned enough? Do they need, should they be taking a leaf out of the book of Seaside? Um, look, I wouldn't want to go too much into our growth area planning here because it's mm. not sort of, I haven't particularly worked in sort of mm. growth area planning here. But one thing I will say about Seaside is the, um, the code for Seaside is about two or three pages, the design right, code. Okay. So for a, for a um, community that's depicted as being ultra-controlled, mm. it's actually got a very um, very simple design yeah. code. Compared to our it's, 80 pages of a yeah, document. And, and, yeah, and one of the things it gets mocked for is um, the, the particular architectural approach. And anyone who's seen photos of Seaside knows it's got this kind of um, very heightened... Mm. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it, it takes that classic American small town design and sort of 
takes it to an ultimate extreme. But none of that's in the design code. That's because they sold these blocks of land with a design code that was mainly about building envelopes and building typographies, but you could design an ultra-modernist building or a, you know, revival building within that code. And because they sold them to quite wealthy, you know, white folks down in Florida, they all built in a particular style, but that's Mm. actually not what the design code says. Um, So Andre Delaney, the the, um, famous sort of urban design architect who uh, was one of the sort of key people, is is one of the key people in the urbanists, has always said, well, you can mock it for its architecture, or you can mock it for being hyper-controlled, but you've got to choose one or the other because mm-hmm. the only way to get rid of that architecture would be to increase the level of control through the design That's a good code. Point, yeah. um, so there are a couple of books out there that um, that actually reproduce, again in a couple of pages, the whole design code for Seaside, mm. and they, they were based on historic forms. They were going, oh well, you know, there's classic, you know, terrace houses in Florida that have this particular proportion, but. All they were dictating was be this far back from the street. They did things like have a porch, have windows facing this, but they didn't really go further than that. So Mm. it's interesting. So in terms of stereotypes, um, that's obviously, you're saying that's a bit of a stereotypical um, American suburban um, village, essentially. Um, Do you think the films play to our inbuilt stereotypes? They, they do, and there are certain forms you see repeated again and again. Yeah. So the thing that I became really interested in as I was looking at it was um, the, the physical models and the physical templates that are mm. used again and again. So um, there were every lot in Hollywood had its own, every studio had its own back lot. Um, there are only about three or four left because LA real estate means they've gradually been torn down and there are better ways to build. But these are essentially little... Hollywood built towns, physical towns that you can go and you can, you know, take tours of the remaining few. So, Steve, have you been to these places? Yeah, yeah. So you can go to Universal Studios, you can wander around Universal Studios, um, and these are communities that got um, repeatedly depicted over and over again, thousands and thousands of times. And once you start looking for them, you start, you know, seeing them in the background of everything. So. And it's Uni- like seventies through to oh, oh that's sorry, from that's 50s from fifties yeah recently so yeah. the street from Leave It to Beaver was shot um, you know Leave It to Beaver is one of these fifties sitcoms that has a mm. lot of scenes with the kids wandering around the community it's a bit unusual in terms of not being all set in the home and they're wandering up and down this street which is the back lot in Universal Studios now it's been reconfigured they moved across a lot but it's basically the same street that then in Desperate Housewives they're on the same street in Desperate mm. Housewives all these things Wisteria Lane yeah Wisteria <laughs> Lane is the exact same street from Leave It to Beaver and in fact the house that the I never watched that much, des- much Desperate Housewives I'm going to have to say that but, come on Steve I don't yeah I've got to retain my credibility by, by saying that but the the opening of Desperate Housewives the narrator character commits suicide in the first episode. Well, she mm-hmm. commits suicide in the Leave It to Beaver house. Ah. So there's this sort of link right back. And I was talking about how these these places um, exist largely satirically. Um, Desperate Housewives is a great example. It is deliberately evoking that sort of sitcom kind of depiction to kind of like show the seedy underbelly. Yeah. The other really good example of a place that... Um, um, has persisted is the Universal also has a town square set which um, the famous use of it that everyone recognises is Back to the Future because they had so many scenes in that sort of town square um, and that's the same town that's in like To Kill a Mockingbird 
Um, so, you know, when they go to the courtroom scenes in To Kill a Mockingbird, the courthouse is the same courthouse that, you know, Doc Brown's swinging off at the end of Back to the Future. So, yeah. Steve, on Back to the Future, uh, the, it's an interesting film in terms of the city planning because it depicts a place in the 50s and then again in the 90s, I think. Yeah, 80s. 80s. 1985. And then in 2015. 2015. Can you tell us some of the differences that are picked up in the film about and whether those changes are atypical of what has happened? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting example because you it's not a film that you think of as being perhaps um, super satirical or uh, it's a very entertaining film, but it's not a, you wouldn't say it's a hard-biting satire or anything. But its view of 1980s physical form versus 1950s physical form is really grim in that the town square has a park in the 50s, um, it's you know, really bustling, it's got shops and everything. And then all the scenes where they're um, in that town square in the 1980s, the clock tower hasn't been fixed for 30 years since the clock broke down, the park's been paved over and is now car parking. Every shop is either closed or is like an adult. The, the cinema's closed and become an adult cinema. The, um, there's, you know, like adult bookshops, there's pawn shops, um, and, you know, the whole centre of town has declined, and then there are also all these scenes hanging out at the mall, you know, Twin Pines Mall in uh, Back to the Future, where he leaves from, um, and also a whole lot of scenes shot in Los Angeles where, um, you might remember, Doc Brown lived in this beautiful arts and crafts house, um, and then in the, uh, in the 1980s scenes, there's a, basically the garage is remaining and there's a Hungry Jack's, well, sorry, Burger King. There's a Burger King where the, you know, Doc Brown's house used to be. So it's got this really depressing view of what's happened between 1950s and 1980s in terms of the physical form of the city. These are some of the arguments we have in everyday life as planners as well. Yep. <laughs> yep. Do we go for the strip shopping or do we go for the big box retail? You know, it's those similar themes that keep occurring. Yeah, but it's the way it's taken for granted in the depiction like that, mm. that the 1980s version is so poor compared to the 1950s version. Yeah. Um, and look, it, it's nostalgia, it's partly nostalgia, so that's one of the things you have to fit through with, um, sort of work through with these depictions. Um, when you look at um, a small town movie from the 40s, so It's a Wonderful Life, so it's got this incredibly rich community life that's depicted, you know, mm. the a lot of action happens on the main street and it's where the whole community comes together and to some extent that was idealistic at the time obviously um, and you don't want to just go well that's what things were like in the 40s by looking at a record like that so you've got to sort through what was always a heightened version of reality but there have been shifts real shifts away from that model of main street retailing that is in that yeah. Thing. And if you don't think a privatised mall is as good a social experience as a Main Street shopping centre with its mix of uses and sort of public, public, genuine public realm open space, um, then the change in community that you're seeing in an older movie like that, there's, there's a reality to it. There are real things being depicted there that are real changes. Mm. Um, and you look at an older movie like that and you're trying to interpret to what extent that is a realistic depiction of things that have changed and your ability to read it reliably decreases with time the further you get away from it. But 
Um, yeah, so it's an interesting question to try and sort through mm -hmm. these depictions. And when people are watching the film, I mean, then they're, they're watching the, the, the into the plot. The, they're not analysing all these things. Is it just more and more different stereotypes or, or, or perceptions we're being plied with? I mean, we, we don't get a chance during the film to deconstruct, you know, this is what it's trying to tell me. No, and I think it's the... Um, you know, any one depiction probably doesn't mean anything, but it's, it's the way these things layer. And so that's what I talk about when, it's, when I say it's about the, the visual images you have that communicate your ideas about community. You don't, you know, you, you don't have a, uh, a positive image of suburbs because you watch a, a, a sitcom, but um, it may be that your visual language of what suburbs are and how you um, understand suburbs to exist is partly informed by the layering of many, many examples of, you know, suburbs on screen that you've seen. And again, you don't um, go away from a particular movie with a, a bad image of, you know, the American inner city, but if you see, you know, Taxi Driver and, you know, Midnight Cowboy and The Wire, the wire. and all of those things pile up, then that, you, you, um, you draw a common line through the, the continued elements. That, that are consistent. Well, I've got to say, Steve, I was in New York last year and it affected how I perceived places and people I saw um, and situations I wanted to avoid because of films I'd seen. Yeah, and I think that New York is a really interesting place to go to because I think it's um, the, the very common experience of being in New York, and it's probably true in places like Paris and Rome as well. Um, you'll often hear people say, you know, I'll go walk around New York, it's like being in a movie. And that's partly because it's an exciting, vibrant space, so it seems more exciting in sort of day-to-day -day life. But it's also, it's, it's one of the most culturally represented places in the world. You walk that space and you can't get, you know, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue out of your head if you're a Woody, Woody Allen fan, or, you know, you walk around the corner and there's the library from Ghostbusters, or the, um, the whole mental construction of what New York is, is... Um, I guess hyper-determined by this layering of, um, of cinematic depictions. I guess the stuff I was looking at in my research is just taking that, that little bit more generic and saying, all right, well, you think of New York in that way based on cultural depictions, but what about broader categories of places? So, you know, small towns, suburbs, big cities. To what extent do you do a similar thing in terms of forming your views about those categories based on, you know, multiple depictions that have got some common threads through them? Mm. What do you think about Australian examples? So things like, I mean, Home and Away, Neighbours, those sort of suburban set um, yep. TV shows which are aired around the world. Do you think they're putting um, stereotypes into, our, into well, our community? Of course they are. Yeah. I guess it's then how that's interpreted. The, um, I mean, I started with American examples because it's a nice closed loop. They, yeah. Anyone who's ever spent any time in America knows it's a very insular society. They make their own uh, film products and they, you know, consume their own culture and it's a, it's a nice little closed cultural loop in terms of the influence between reality and, and culture. Australia's harder to study in a sort of systematic way because so many of our cultural influences come from America yeah, that's a good and point. other overseas places. So it's a bit more of a melting pot culturally. But you can look at the Australian examples and see the same things playing out. So mm -hmm. if you were taught, the other thing is it's a smaller pool of examples, I mm -hmm. guess. So in Australia, you go, well, neighbours, you know, you've got this um, Australian equivalent of the classic sort of suburban stereotype. 
And then if you go, well, what are the examples you pull for of the equivalent of your Seinfeld? Um, you know, Friends, you know, Will and Grace, American examples. Um, I guess you go to something like Secret Life of Us, which is the, you know, was... Offspring. Yeah, it's well, I, I didn't watch Offspring, but I'll take the word for it. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, you do get these cultural depictions, and in Melbourne it's always St Kilda of, you know, the, the classic... Um, inner city, you know, hip, vibrant sort mm. of, you know, young person's lifestyle um, and that positive image of, of the inner city, yeah. um, you can also see in the Australian examples as well. With uh, uh, Just before we started recording, Jess was saying that you, you, we can't create Ramsey Street anymore because court bowls are out. Isn't that right, Jess, in our new suburbs? Mm, they are. Well, they're discouraged. Uh, planners and designers depicted in film, how, how are they depicted in film? Well, not often directly. Um, there are probably a handful of examples. Um, actually, you're talking about Australian examples. There's the Chris Haywood character in Grassroots, if any of you remember that, who's this kind of hybrid of a builder and a planner, which just that irritates me. Just because I, <laughs> I go, those are two different things. Why is he playing both these roles? But, um, you know, and he's, he's incredibly dodgy, if you remember that show. But, um, you know, so there's, there's not often very... Um, direct depictions of planning as an activity. Um, I guess it's just not seen as that sexy, but one of the things I became really interested in was the sort of oblique depictions of um, sort of planning uh, through sort of, I guess, analogy, I suppose you'd say. And The Truman Show is a classic example where Christoph is like this master planner of this artificial world that Truman's kept prisoner in, um, and he he creates the whole thing and he manipulates the whole thing and it's this really um, exaggerated for effect idea of what, what planning is. Um, Dark City, the um, science fiction movie, has got this sort of tribe of pasty white aliens that basically have this godlike power to manipulate the built environment. So there's this really strange series of depictions of people with a, a ultra... A, a, a very heightened ability to control the built environment that's painted in a very nightmarish sense. Steve, in your book, you, um, I'm just thinking of Cinderella, the movie's just about to come out, and uh, in your book you talk about Disney and his uh, influences on or wish to create urban spaces. Yeah, Disney's a really interesting figure because he, he um, represents that sort of crossover point. He was a filmmaker and... Um, if you follow Disney's career as a filmmaker, he largely checked out from his interest in films by about the mid-40s. Um, he bobbed into a few projects, but he was mostly a producer after that and was pretty hands-off. He became obsessed from the late 40s with building first Disneyland, um, and then after he built Disneyland, he became obsessed with building what he called Epcot, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. If you've ever been to Epcot in Florida, it's this awful um, like 80s theme park that was done after he died but there's it's really really interesting to look at both Disneyland as a piece of urban design the original Disneyland in Los Angeles which is much better than the later ones which in itself is interesting given they they've never been able to sort of improve on it um, it's a it was largely the design of that was largely driven by Disneyland uh, sorry, by Disney and if you go to Disneyland it's his you, know, you can dislike it for all sorts of other reasons in terms of you know your, your cultural reaction to that kind of Disney culture, but 
you walk down Main Street USA, which is the thing that you have to walk through, the only part of Disneyland you have to go through, and it's basically a Victorian streetscape. So Disneyland sits on the edge of Los Angeles, you drive down a freeway, you park your car in a parking garage, and you pay a whole lot of money to then walk through a artificial reconstruction of a Victorian streetscape, the kind of streetscape that we sort of take for granted in inner city Melbourne. Um, the rides in Disneyland, when Disneyland was first opened, Disneyland didn't have, you know, a, a roller coaster. Um, the first roller coaster they built in Disneyland was the Matterhorn, which was several years after it was opened. The rides in Disneyland were public transport. You would get on the train that went around, you would get on little streetcars that went up and down the streets. Um, there were, you know, little buses that you could ride on. Um, it was selling this privatised idea of, um, you know, a facsimile. You can, you know, it depends how good you think it was in terms of how disparaging you are about that, but it was an artificial recreation of the experience of community that they basically exterminated in Los Angeles. And when he died, he was trying to do that on a massive scale. And um, I personally think it was, it was the original plans for Epcot, um, because it was a private development, it's been very hard to get hold of the plans, so I think not been as well known as they should have been. If you're interested in um, uh, sort of, I guess, utopias, you know, you were talking about utopias before, if you're interested in the idea of the utopic planned city, um, Epcot is, I think, one of the most interesting examples from the 20th century because this was someone who, who had the means. He had the ability, he had the money, he had a demonstrated knack for urban design and he was, you know, trying to build this quasi-Le Corbusier, quasi-Ebenezer Howard, quasi-Radburn amalgam of um, all of the thinking and town planning at the time. There are a couple of really good books. There's a book called Walt Disney and the Quest for Community by a guy named Steve Mannheim and a book called Walt and the Promise of Progress City, I think it's called, by a guy named Sam Genaway. So the, the information about these plans is starting to get out there and there's you know, a couple of really good sort of studies of the strengths and weaknesses of it, but it's a really, really interesting example. And turning to the Australian uh, space, what sort of places are exciting you at the moment in terms of new development or new ideas, new places, new ideas? Oh, there's a question without notice. I hadn't really, uh, hadn't really thought about that, to be honest. Um, I don't immediately have a great answer for a, a particular place. I'm sure there are lots of awesome places. As I was saying to Jess, I haven't done that much uh, sort of growth area planning, so I don't get out and see what the sort of exciting things happening out on the fringe are, to be honest. So, Sorry for that question, that notice. Nah, that's all right. right. We'll move on to your teaching. Um, what do you like about lecturing teaching? Um, I think it's a, it's the ability to sort of get back to the basics of what planning is that's, I think, really excites me about it. Um, you know, I teach statutory planning, which is nominally, I guess, the more sort of nuts and bolts-ish aspect of it. And I, um, I uh, you know, worked as a stat planner, mostly in local government, for about 15 years. And, you know, those of us, you know, probably most of the people listening to this are going to be, be planners who work in the system and it can get you down a bit, I suppose, sometimes in terms of the, the ins and outs of planning applications and all that kind of stuff. But getting back and thinking about, all right, well, and talking to the students about, all right, well, why are you interested in planning? What, you know, what made you an urbanist? What made you um, excited about, um, about being a planner? What were things you liked? And thinking about the way the system can get us back to those things and the way that we could have a, 
a, a sort of more visionary kind of planning system that was actually better at achieving those outcomes mm -hmm. and trying to stop seeing planning practice, that exercise of applying for planning permits and blah, 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 and planning theory and all the sort of social and environmental and economic and all the different objectives, all the things we love about cities, stopping seeing those as two different things. And, you know, if I can get, you know, the students to be thinking about how to link the two things in their mind and go out into the industry and become a new generation of planners that can actually keep those two things together better. Um, that's one of the big challenges, I suppose, about starting working is that the theory and practice is very different. Yeah, yeah. And look, you know, I think um, that's why it's personally satisfying because for me, when I did work, they do become separate. So returning to that kind of space of teaching after a lot of time in practice, you start to try and uh, mend it in your own mind. You start to sort of repair it and pull it back together. And I guess I'd like to think that my, my experience is I went out and was a stat planner for 15 years and, and you do the, do the technical exercise and, you know, I've, I've always thought I've been reasonably sort of passionate about cities and things, but too often the two things did separate. Mm. Um, I'd like to help the students um, not have that separation, have to put it back together as I did. I'd like them to go out and keep those two things hand in hand. And that's both about their own attitude to the world and the way they think about things and the way they go about things. Mm. But then hopefully, as, as well as their own attitude, they can start to bring that to bear on the actual planning system and the way the planning system's designed so that mm. the planning system can be better at doing the things we all want it to do. Yeah, um, and maintaining enthusiasm, which is yeah. a real task, I yeah. think. We've got ourselves into a space, no, sorry, Peter, we've got ourselves into a space about planning reform, for example, yeah. where it's all about just making everything go quicker. And that's important, that's really important, but there's no point just making it go quicker and quicker and quicker if it's not doing the things we want it to do. Mm. Like, and there's um, not a lot of room for creativity within that space as well. Yeah, and maybe there are some things we get out of and don't regulate, mm. but we concentrate on the things we want to do. And if we are keeping that vision of what is exciting about cities and what, you know, what the planning system really needs to do at the forefront, we can hopefully slim down, do those things better, and everything will be a lot more satisfying because you'll be able to draw the link between what the regulatory system's doing and what the sort of visions for planning are. So there's something pure about the teaching that you enjoy. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, yeah, it, it's getting you back to back to what you sort of got into it for, I guess. All right. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for your time today. Don't think any of us will look at movies the same again. I feel slightly jibbed knowing that. All my favourite 90s movies were filmed on the same set, about my knowledge. <laughs> I know there'll be a lot of people out there eagerly awaiting the release of your book later this year. And so just a reminder to our listeners to also check out our website, www.planningexchange.org, where you'll find out further information on all of our past and future guests. And we'll also put a link up to, um, to Stephen's website for everyone's viewing. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. Relax your body. What makes you the exception? To get ready to fly. The history of the future. With the wideband circuits, break it down into thousand bit packets, and a message will go back such as this. All over the world, rewriting, recreating the same old programs over and over and over. For example, speed.
sample of bulky and heavy wide band transmission.